It is great to be here this morning with you. Um, as we're going through the Psalms, I want to uh, just pause and reflect. I want to say, maybe you've caught the news uh, that as we're doing this uh, Hurricane Harvey, it's been very unusual in that the country is actually coming together. You hear stories about people helping each other. I think that should be celebrated every chance we get. And so um, if there's a way that you want to contribute to uh, the help that's going on there, of course, pray for our brothers and sisters, but you can also go through the Red Cross. You can go through Samaritan's Purse, uh, just helping these people out. If you want to get more information, we're going to try to get that through social media and how you can participate. But, like, it's amazing that people are coming together for this. Uh, one of the lesser-known stories on the natural disaster list also is, uh, I'm from Montana. Some of us love Montana. The state of Rhode Island, if it were on fire, is what Montana is experiencing. Uh, there are a lot of fires there. And uh, just you know, pray for God's beauty to be protected. Pray for firemen. And so uh, we're going to be praying for those things in our opening prayer. Our youth, uh, middle school and high school, are starting up this week. Uh, we're going to... We have one volunteer. I don't know if you know her. Uh, she's the sweet, demure Virginia. Um, and uh, so the first night, for whatever reason, Leanne said, we're going to be at my place, and we're going to do it at our place. Uh, it's going to be this Tuesday. If you have a middle schooler or a high schooler, we'd love to have them. The details should be up there. Uh, you can stalk my house if you need to. Uh, that'd be great. Uh, how many people are ready for school to start on the 6th? And by ready, I mean you are either have a child that's going and your life can return to normal. <laughs> Amen, Furix, right? Like, um, or you're a student ready to get away from your parents, or you work in the educational system. How many of that is you? All right, what I'm going to ask you to do is trust me, stand up, and I'm going to pray for your lives this school year. <laughs> I'm serious. Please stand up. All right, God bless these people because they need a blessing, and we pray for the school year that it just goes smoothly, that the young minds get rid of the cobwebs, the, the schedules return to families, that teachers know how to navigate uh, between student and parent and student and life, and God just be part of this uh, beautiful part of our lives with school systems, and I pray for these people. We pray for the people in Houston, we pray for the people in Montana, that you would be with them and people would find you everywhere. It's because of you we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Um, Psalm 73 is where we're heading today. And uh, when uh, George asked us to think about what psalms we want, I knew I wanted Psalm 73. It's one of my favorites. Um, and yet then when I picked it out, uh, maybe even a month ago, I was doing pretty good. But this month, and you'll notice this is a theme of this psalm, uh, really kicked me. I suffered from a lot of things that it talks about. Uh, I have lived this. And so trying to navigate this has been interesting, trying to, you know, tell people, hey, things are going to be great as I'm getting kicked by the verses more than you are. And so it's one of those things, sometimes you will hear a minister say, oh, I, I uh, felt like the sermon was more for me than you. This is certainly one of those that I can embrace completely. Uh, Psalm 73 uh, starts uh, book three of the Psalms, uh, George George's dad, George, told us about um, that uh, there are different psalms for different reasons. And book three kind of goes with the five opening books of uh, the Old Testament. This is also a psalm by Asaph. Asaph was uh, an author of Psalm 50 and 70 through, 73 through 83. Um, he was a worship leader that David picked out in First Chronicles 6. And so this is a, from a worship leader. So uh, it's one of those things. It's not a Davidic one. It's not one from Solomon. It's from Asaph. 
Uh, the other thing that is interesting about this is that opening line. I, I love opening lines. Uh, it used to be back back in the day that you would open a book and you'd read the first line. You know, call me Ishmael. What a great opening line that is. Or it's the best of times, or the worst of times, is the spring of hope, winter of despair. Yeah, all those things. Great lines, and they kind of suck you into the story. I would suggest that Psalm 73 has a similar kind of strategy, and it says this. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Surely God is to Israel. This is odd. Uh, George, last week, uh, George two. Uh, the pastor of Bethany, when he spoke here, we talked about that Israel was the name that Jacob got. Uh, let me tell you a little story about that, because I think that fits in here nicely. Jacob, whose name means cheater, literally, if your name's Jacob, I'm sorry, your name means cheater. Um, you might want to change your name to Israel or something, I don't know, no. So uh, Jacob uh, was a cheater because he was the second-born son, and back in the day, everything went through the first-born son. How many first-born sons are there? Oh, shoot, I'm going to tell any good first son stuff. As a first son, I will not tell you other stuff. Anyway, so he's the second son, Jacob is, and he wants to steal all the first son's stuff. And he tricks him, he cheats him for doing that. The confrontation that we have here in Genesis 32 is one of those things where he is now going to meet his brother again. So he does, he divides up his animals and he puts a third of them out there and says, go in front of me. And if, if my brother stops you and confronts you and says, who are these? You say, they're my servants, uh, Jacob's but they're yours. You, you take them. I want you to have them. And he has this idea that he wants to give to his brother the stuff that he has, and he's trying to make up for any ill will or whatever that might be. He does those things, and he, he gets those going, and then he just has his family surrounding him. He's on one side of the river, um, and the, his family, uh, he sends them to the other side. The, the river is Jabbok. And in this river, uh, he sends, include, it says he takes his wives, his children, and put them on the other side of the river. So he alone is on the one side of the river, Jabbok. Jabbok means failure. Have you ever had a time in your life when you failed and you felt all alone? Or maybe more like Jacob, you failed and you want to be alone. I just want to be alone. I, I don't want anybody around me. Your best friend isn't comfort. Your spouse isn't of comfort. You just want to be alone. Jacob sent his, his uh, wives and his children across the river, and he wanted to be left alone in his failure. He's over there, and a man shows up. And, of course, he, he wants to be alone. He's not looking to have a conversation. He's not looking to make things right. And so he's like, I just want to be alone. And he and this dude start fighting. They start wrestling. Something significant happens. Jacob realizes this is a more significant fight than I thought it was, and they wrestle all night. And as they wrestle all night, finally the guy that he's been wrestling with, who we now know is the Lord, says to him, let me go. And Jacob says, not until you give me a blessing. You ever gotten a fight with a guy and said, I won't let you go until you give me a blessing? This was Jacob's strategy. And so he's, no, not until you give me a blessing. And it just didn't happen for him. And they wrestle, and finally he says, what is your name? And he says, my name's Jacob. And the man, the Lord, says, this is my blessing. You will no longer be called Jacob. You will be called Israel. Because you have struggled with God and man and overcome. Your name is Israel. And that's the blessing he got. Fast forward to where we are here in Psalm 73 when it says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
This verse could say, surely God is good to those of us who have struggled with God and man and overcome. This is to us. This isn't something that can be just shared with the nation of Israel. This is for the people that have struggled against man and God. Have you ever found yourself there? You don't have to answer. I can say yes for all of you here that I have. Struggling with God is something that is natural. It's not something that we should be ashamed of. It's, it's who we are. We struggle against God and man. In verse 2, Asaph says this. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. He, he wasn't paying attention to the trail. He almost slipped. He wasn't thinking through his, his lives, and so he almost slipped. I think this is uh, kind of like when problems come our way. Most of the time, when problems come our way, they don't come running down the sidewalk. Hey, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to eat you up. I'm going to destroy your life. It's not like a bad 80s horror movie that way, right? There, there's no Jason coming after you. There's, there's no Michael Myers coming after you. It's the little things that sneak up on you, that snare you, that capture you, that kind of make your life miserable. The New Testament tells us that our enemy is like a lion, sneaking around, crouching, looking to see whom he may devour. Have you seen the YouTube video where the lion's in the grass and eats the elephant? Like it comes out of nowhere. It's like that. That's how our enemy works. That's, that's how it was. And so when Asaph says, I almost slipped... Why do you almost slip? Well, he's kind of letting us know what happened. He's complaining about these things in, in Psalm 73. He's looking at the arrogant. He said, I envied the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he kind of rips into them. He says things like this. Uh, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. They clothe themselves with violence. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak malice. They're arrogance. They threaten oppression. They say, how would God know? They say, does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked like. They're always carefree and they go on amassing wealth. As he's listing out all these things, you, you feel like he's keeping score, right? It's almost like he has the seven deadly skins and he's like, oh, they're prideful. Oh, they're lustful. Oh, they're greedy. Oh, they're arrogant. Oh, and he's just going through this and saying, God, don't, aren't you paying attention? These people are terrible. And yet he doesn't understand it. He even says, I envied them, which is one of the seven deadly sins, right? So isn't that like us too? We, we say, oh yeah, these people, they, of the seven deadly sins, they're doing six of them, Lord. Stop them. I'm envious of them, of course, which shouldn't count as the seventh deadly sin, and we want justice on other people. I'm always ready to give justice to other people. I don't judge anybody. I just want justice. Right? We hide behind biblical words so to make our position better. I think what really catches our attention, though, is that when he says, For I envy the arrogant and saw the prosperity of the wicked, arrogant people are, you know, there was that song, Short People Have No Reason. I know you don't know that song. But arrogant people have no reason. They have no reason to live. They just shouldn't be allowed. They, they, it, they're just ridiculous. Who are the arrogant people? These are the people that somehow, I don't know how because I don't know this world, in their social media can update it every five minutes about something they did ten minutes ago. 
Like, that's amazing. I, or they're the people that just seek attention. They walk into the room and say, hey, this is about me. The, the old adage, how do you know if an arrogant party has crashed your block party? They'll tell you, right? It, it can be done. They just have this idea that they're the slice of heaven that you need. You're so lucky to have them. And, and who wants to be with arrogant people? He doesn't like the arrogant people. Asa said, these are terrible. Wicked people, these are also terrible people. These are the people that they know what God wants and expects out of them, or they might even have an imagination where they don't technically know, but they're like, I don't care. I'm not going to do that. In the Northwest, we say, uh, for the most part, in the Northwest, we don't feel like we're, we think we're in a post-Christian world where the Christian values and standards or the way of thinking that we're trying to derive out of our following Christ is absent here. I came from San Francisco. Here's the difference. If I go to a coffee shop, let's say Anthem, and I do a Bible study, I can do a Bible study with it. And maybe I've seen some of you do a Bible study there. It's great to do that there. In San Francisco, I do a, a Bible study in a coffee shop. Someone is going to shut the Bible, say, please don't do that here. You can leave. Like, those are two different worlds, right? But, but that's what wicked people do. They kind of know it's okay to do Bible studies, but not here, not now. They kind of just push it aside. And so we have this idea that, hmm, I, I don't know that the wicked should be envied. The other struggle here for Asaph, and probably for us, is this idea of prosperous. They seem prosperous to us. In Jeremiah, a lot of us know Jeremiah as uh, one of the prophets that has great things to say. Um, Jeremiah is writing to the people in uh, Babylon, and these people in Babylon shouldn't be in Babylon. They were exiled there. Sometimes we feel like we're in exile of our own lives, right? You feel like, am I really living my life? I have this one quote that I like uh, that says, we are all in exile. Some of us just don't know it yet. And I think that really captures the feeling that I feel a lot of times like I'm in exile. Well, Jeremiah decides to write to these people. And this is what he says the Lord says. This is what the Lord Almighty of God of Israel says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. A couple of verse later, he says this verse, and some of us might have seen this on our parents' walls or in a poster. This is a more well-known one. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Well, this is what Asaph is complaining. He's like, uh, the people that are prospering are the ones that are doing wicked, arrogant things. The word prosper here, both in Jeremiah and the Psalms, is the word shalom. It means peace with everything. Peace within yourself. Peace between individual and the community. Peace between uh, heaven and earth. This holistic peace that is only supposed to come about because we're praying for it and we're living in the covenant, in the relationship that God has asked us to live. We're playing by the rules and so the byproduct is you get shalom. Asaph says, I'm tired of seeing the shalom with the people that aren't keeping the rules. 
I think most of us don't like rules unless we're looking at other people, and then we want to quickly say, oh, you're not playing by the rules, therefore you're out. My son um, likes board games, not as much as I do, but when he was a kid, um, he was, he'd make games. And the problem with playing with any little kid, doesn't matter if it's my son or not, is they always change the rules, right? And so I can remember playing with him, and I always have to say, now what are the rules again? Okay, yeah, I won. You know, I mean, just really trying to figure out what the rules are so that you know what the playing field is. I think in the same way we do that with all our friends, and they're confused. They're like, but uh, last week you told me to do this. I'm I'm concerned that you don't know. And I think it's because we find ourselves as Asaph saying, you know what, I look around and the people that aren't playing by the rules are getting just as many benefits as I'm supposedly getting for following the rules. Can you identify with them there? Does that make sense? Shalom usually bites us that way. There's a time in verse 17, uh, verse 16, let me back up to 16. It says, um, when I tried to figure all this out, all I got was a splitting headache. That's what the message says, verse 16 says. When I tried to figure this out, all I got was a splitting headache. When you try to reconcile what you know about God, what you want to feel about God, what you know about how he wants things to happen and how you see things happen... How do you do that reconciliation? That is hard math. That could give one a splitting headache. How is it that all I see is injustice? How is it that I'm not seeing the benefits of following Christ? How is it that what I'm supposed to be enjoying, I'm resenting? And everybody that resents what I believe seems to be enjoying I, I was, I've been envious of friends that, you know, I think, I, so yesterday I got to celebrate my, my anniversary, and I got to say, celebrate with Dave and Elena up in the middle of nowhere, Copper Creek Inn, having a meal. So we went up to paradise, because that's what you do, and it was really great. I got to tell you, I'm envious of my friends that can say, I think I want to go to Vancouver for the weekend, and off they go. They have the time to do that. They have the money to do that. They have the, I don't know, stuff I don't have that I want. I'm envious of it. And they get to do those kind of things. I think that when envy enters the picture, it kind of twists our reality. And so for me, when it says, uh, when I try to figure it all out, I got a splitting headache, makes total sense. The pivot verse to this psalm is verse 17. And it says, This was really hard. I was getting a splitting headache until I came into God's holy place. Did I finally understand? That's the translation out of the God's uh, Word translation. But it says, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I understood. This is a little geeky, but I want to talk about the sanctuary of God here. In this example, when it says sanctuary of God, that's not the best translation. There are a couple translations that say it better because three times in the Psalms does it do this, and this is one of them. It should be translated sanctuaries of God, not sanctuary of God. And I, I want to suggest that it's important that we go sanctuaries because I would suggest to you we have three, four sanctuaries available to us here at Whitewater. Sanctuary one is you've come on a Sunday. You've come to hear Pastor George speak. He's going to help you. He's going to encourage your faith. He's going to challenge you with some things you may or might have known, and it will encourage your faith. Another way that you could have a sanctuary is your community group. If you're not plugged into a community group, you need to be. 
This is, this is where life happens. This is where you can visit with people about the things that you're going through. Maybe the things that you're envious of, the things that you're observing. I would encourage you strongly to get involved with the community group this fall. A third one is, as I look out, I see friends. I see people that I know. And you can go out with them for coffee and say, hey, I got some stuff I'm working through. You know, I'm always amazed when um, a friend of mine will take me out for coffee and they'll say, hey, what are some things that you're going through? Or I remember last time you talked about this. Are you getting better at that? Like as a pastor, that's such a welcome thing to hear people asking about me. Because most of the time when people want to have coffee, they want to tell me about them. Which I love doing. It's very enjoyable. But I think that sometimes I, I feel like I want people to ask how I'm doing with things. And I think you're the same way, right? You have friends that always ask you out to talk about them. But occasionally you'd like them to talk about you. The fourth way that I think we have a sanctuary of God is what I just talked about up at Paradise. Romans tells us that nature tells of God. Are you spending time in nature and hearing about God? These are sanctuaries that are available to us right now. Why is it important to have sanctuaries? I want to suggest that it's very important to have sanctuaries because without them, our life trajectory gets off kilter. Pilots call it one in 60. Basically, it means for every uh, 60 miles you fly, if you're one degree off, you'll be one mile off. And so they're constantly having to look at their, their monitors, their, their instruments, to make sure they're flying. Because around them, they might be flying in solid clouds. Or they, they might be just getting off looking at God's beautiful creation. And if you're not paying attention to your instruments, you'll get one or two degrees off, and it'll be really bad. So, like, if you were on a commuter flight between here and Portland, you might be only a couple miles off and only miss the runway by a couple miles. Not a big deal. I mean... You could probably figure that out. When you're going cross-continental, when you're landing at JFK and you land in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, it might be a bigger deal to you then. But right now, it doesn't seem like a big deal. The other thing that happens with degrees is we don't even notice it. And so when we come into these sanctuaries, we can notice, like Asaph did, oh, now it makes sense. Because maybe Pastor George will say something and go, hmm, that's right, I forgot about that. Maybe at your community group, someone will say, ah, you know, I wonder if you thought about this. When you're out of coffee, someone might challenge you. Or even looking at God's nature, you can say, that's incredible. Because again, this idea is, if you have a trajectory that's off, it needs fixed. Short term, maybe not so much. Uh, if you golf like I do, which means you grip and rip, if that makes sense to you, you line it up and you... And that hook just keeps going two holes over. Like, if you could pick any hole, that'd be a great way to golf. But how do we fix that, those of us that have that problem? Easy. You stand looking this way. And you go there, and I know it'll end up straight, right? Because it's a short-term solution. I can, just, I can just change. I can stand 45 degrees over here. It won't matter. I'm going to be right down the fairway. It doesn't work like that way in life. We're going a lot farther than driving a golf ball. And if you're driving a golf ball, you want that correction to come? Think how much more you want your life to turn outright. You need to do that by entering the sanctuaries of God. Coming to church on a Sunday. A lot of times we think, ah, I'm good for once a month. Cool. Great. Your trajectory might be way over here. You've got to do something about that. You might say community groups aren't that big a deal. I, I don't like people that much. Okay. Your trajectory is going to be way over there, and you, no one's going to tell you, but you'll be okay because you don't like people. The trajectory becomes important. If you want short-term change... Focus on behavior. You want short-term change, focus on behavior. You want to get that ball down the middle of the fairway, adjust your stance 45 degrees, and aim for that fairway. You will be okay. 
But that does not work for what we want to do long-term. If we want long-term change, we have to focus on a whole new mental paradigm, a whole new picture, a whole new way of seeing things, a whole new way of seeing God, a whole new way of seeing how those interact. The only way to do that that I know that the psalmist would challenge you with is entering the sanctuaries of God. Find a sanctuary, enter it. You'll get to the place, and, and I hope you do. I, I, I get there sometimes, and I want to get there more, where you say, like verse 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing as I desire besides you. Paul says this in the New Testament. He says, I'll give up the whole world. I might be crazy. I'll give the, take the whole world. I'd rather have Jesus. Jesus' disciples, when they're challenged with, hey, you want to leave me now? They say, well, no. Where would we go? Who has the words of life? They, they went to the end and they knew that their only hope were the words of, of life. Jesus challenges us when he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And as I was looking at this, uh, that concept, I, was, I really like that. I'm very motivated. I like When it lists all these things that the arrogant and wicked people have, or the trips that they get to take to Vancouver, whatever that is listening, I, I can sometimes think, oh, I wish I had that. Well, what's that going to gain them in eternity? The long game is the long game. And it is going to come there. And there is a time for reconciliation that's going to happen. So I looked at it, and I came across uh, an article that Michael Huffington wrote. Uh, those of you who don't know Michael Huffington, um, his wife, uh, Andriana, and he started the Huffington Post. And uh, it's a very political one in nature, and they're uh, the left of center, but they kind of give you kind of worldviews. And so to put a post on here, I thought this was amazing. And he had an article called, What Does It Profit a Man? If you have a chance, you should look at this article in the Huffington Post, What Does It Profit a Man? I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs of what he said here. We spend more time in cinemas, theaters, art galleries, and theme parks than we do at churches, and they have become our new cathedrals. We can spend hours at any of these places of entertainment, but if church service goes on too long, we get impatient. We love to listen to music and to dance the night away much more than often the singing hymns to our Lord. We pay more attention, uh, we pay more to watch a football, basketball, or baseball game than when we leave in, uh, in a tray as it's passed through the pews. We care more about money, honors, fame, glory, recognition, entertainment, physical gratification, and a myriad of other things than we do about enlightenment, spirituality, and peace in our lives. Yet even when we are satiated with the good things in life, we often find ourselves feeling empty. Something seems to be missing. Many people turn to yoga, gurus, feel-good seminars, legitimately looking for ways to fill the empty void that they feel in their lives. Others turn to alcohol, drugs, prostitutes, and search for ways to either deaden the pain or find a source of intimacy that's missing. I just thought, he just really captures what I felt about this song. Like, are we really talking about these things? These are the things to be envied. These are the things that we'd want. He concludes his uh, psalm with this verse in verse 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell all of your deeds. Through your angst, through coming through the sanctuaries, we can get to this place where we say, I want to get to the place 
that I can tell of your good deeds. Now, this sounds like a great plan, but it also sounds like a really hard plan. As an example, those of us that went to the guac party, and you're taking that guacamole, and you're like, this, this, God is surely good. This guacamole is so good. And then you tell your friend that you brought, you know, just like this guacamole, Jesus is really good. And they're like, sounds a little lumpy. It doesn't make sense because you've not made the relationship. You're trying to talk about the good deeds of God in a way that doesn't make sense to them. Parties were the introduction for you to get to know your neighbors, your friends. There are ways that you can go back on that. I had my block party, and we invited people on my block. It, was, it went really well. I'll tell you, one of the amazing things that happened, Steve, my friend Steve, got together with my neighbor, and I saw him talking to him, and, I, and he kept talking to him, and he kept talking to him. They exchanged information. My friend Steve is reading books that my neighbor has given him, and they're going to have conversations about that. That's amazing. That's how this begins. That's how we begin to talk about the good deeds that the Lord has done for us. I would encourage you to begin to make relationships with your friends, your neighbors, in ways that will make sense that you can do that. What are the books you ask that they're reading? Are they spiritual in nature? One's the biography of Einstein. One of them's how media twists everything. And the last one is how the church has ruined the mind and we're just mindless people. Those are the books that they're reading. That's awesome. That's the beginning of conversation. Those are the things that need to happen. So it says that at the end of verse 28, I will tell of all your deeds. Uh, today, you're seeing that their tables are up here. And, and during the, uh, when the song is played, I want us to take communion together. Communion is one of those things where we get to tell of the good deeds. Let me read this verse out of 1 Corinthians to you. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. You are telling good deeds. When, when Jesus instituted uh, at the Last Supper this idea of communion, he said, anytime you eat bread and drink wine, I want you to think of me and I want you to tell my good deeds. You're doing that as you do this. You're remembering that uh, I gave my body for you, that I gave my blood for this. And you'll remember that. He said it with the most common elements, the bread and the wine. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that every time we take it, we are proclaiming that again. So this time, again, uh, what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to go use the outside aisles, grab from the table, and then come back in the middle. A lot of times during communion, we are very quiet to each other. Sometimes we give a a nice smile, or sometimes we say, good to see you, or uh, the Seahawks aren't on this week. We say something quietly so other people can't hear. But I want to encourage you maybe this week to say, hey, this is a good deed. Hey, God is good. Can we whisper that to each other? Let's proclaim that as we're taking that. So, um, as you think about your life, as you think about Psalm 73 and how these psalms enter your life, I would encourage you just to absorb all of it. Go with the first sentence. The Lord is good to those that struggle with man and God. I almost slipped until I went into the sanctuaries of God. When I got in the sanctuary of God, I got a better perspective. I understood that there is more to life than the things that I'm envious of. There are more things important that God wants out of me. And I will proclaim them. And I will proclaim them even as I take communion with my brothers and sisters. If you're someone today that uh, you're like, I'm I'm sorry, I'm still in the envy track. I I don't want to be considered a brother and sister. I'm just on this journey. I was here today. I don't know what I believe. I'm not sure what you're talking about. I want to encourage you to say, that's okay. 
This is a place you get to belong before you believe. Wherever you are today, that's exactly where you're supposed to be. Whatever you're struggling with today, that's what you're supposed to be struggling with. It's what you do with that struggle. Don't just check it into neutral and say, I can live with this. Engage in one of the sanctuaries of God that I talked about. Maybe come back to church next week and learn uh, from someone else. Maybe you decide to become part of a community group where you can hear what that sounds like. Maybe just take a friend out and say, hey, can you help me with some of the things I'm working through? And if you feel like nothing's available to you, go up to Christine Falls and just watch the waterfall and commune with God. God, I'm so thankful that uh, we get to be part of what you're actively doing in our lives. Thank you for letting us be um, part of the experience. I pray that as we take the elements, I pray as we experience in you, that we would learn more about you, that we'd understand more about you, and that we would feel your presence even today. It's because of you we're praying. In Jesus' name, amen.